the Norse myths are so well known. These myths, Freya, Odin, Thor, Loki, these Norse myths that were part of the world of the Vikings, they're so well known that they're almost hidden. They've been told and retold and adapted for movies, novels, operas and computer games. Indeed, they are almost ubiquitous in gaming. In the game Skyrim, in the game World of Warcraft and so many more. These myths are so familiar, so embedded in the culture that we have inherited that they are almost hidden and it might take a fresh perspective to restore their strangeness, restore the original mental world from which they came. And of all places in the world, it is perhaps surprising to think that that fresh perspective comes not from Scandinavia, but the very tropical El Salvador. What does El Salvador have to do with the Norse myths? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. Welcome to the Burning Archive, and here I am with another uh, episode based on the questions asked of me by Isaac Rich back in episode 32. This archive is for the players, and today's episode is in relationship to Isaac's question about the Norse myths. I am Jeff Rich, I'm a writer, podcaster, historian and very, very minor government official. And uh, today is all about, this podcast is all about uh, history and culture, where the past is not dead, the past is not even past. And a great way to explore that theme is through the Norse myths, which we see everywhere uh, around us. You know, as I'm talking to you today, I've got a Thor's hammer hanging from my neck. And, you know, we can watch Marvel films uh, about Thor and Loki and and we can play computer games where, for example, in World of Warcraft, you encounter uh, various representations of Norse, both culture, uh, particularly in the frozen wastes of Northrend, as well as in the key characters, the stories, direct representations of Norse stories like Freya and Thor and Odin, Fenrir. Indeed, the whole idea of a world tree itself comes from from these Norse myths. So it's everywhere, and that is perhaps why uh, Isaac asked the question, that he did back in episode 32. So let's just hear what that question was. This question, uh, I guess, links to a few different things. It's, it's again, a, a broader question. Um, so there's links to, there's a game called Age of Empires, but there's a spin-off game of that called Age of Mythology. Uh, and also some, I feel like maybe more um, popular TV shows or TV show theme in recent time. In recent times, obviously there was the massive show Vikings. 
So talking about those sort of things, I would like the Burning Archive to give us a bit of an overview summary of Norse mythology. Uh, So who were the big gods uh, or something that I, even though I know, you know, some of the gods, Odin was the sort of main person or main god in that, right? And then there's there's Freya uh, and a few other figures. Um, But also how is it practiced? That's something that I, I really don't know anything about. And maybe even what are sort of modern legacies or modern legacies, whether in, in sort of culturally or um, yeah. in terms of artifacts or places that that kind of reflect that history. Yeah. So some of the key questions Isaac's really raising there are, you know, what are what are some of the big gods or the big elements of Norse mythology? What's what's some of the key parts of it? Uh, how is it practiced, and how does it, I guess, fit into the mental, social, cultural world of the? Or how was it practiced? I should say, uh, and how it fits, how it fitted into the mental and cultural world of. Uh, the Norse, the Vikings, uh, and indeed of the uh, environments from which they came. And then finally, what what are some of the sort of modern legacies of the Norse myths in culture, in artefacts, in the stories we tell ourselves, and perhaps maybe particularly in any sort of modern residue of pagan celebration or in life in the countries most directly affected by those Norse myths in Scandinavia, including perhaps Iceland, Sweden, Norway, even maybe Northern Britain. And broadly what I'm going to do is I'm going to a bit of an overview and a sort of sense of just the uh, pervasive presence of Norse myths in our own world, where do we get our knowledge of uh, Norse mythology and a bit of an overview of the pantheon, if you like, or the key gods and their, their some of the key themes. And then I'm going to try to answer the question I posed in my introduction of what exactly do the Norse myths have to do with El Salvador and then discuss some of the key uh, features of the mental social world of Norse mythology, how how it was practiced, if you like, how it fitted into a, a broader social cultural world of the, the Vikings or the Norse peoples. I guess one of the overall themes, though, is also the Norse myths are stranger than we think, especially now that they've been, I guess, incorporated or you know, gone through a process of adaptation, first through Christianity and then forms of literary and other, you know, visual and other sort of culture um, over centuries since, you know, 1200 and um, have been sort of adapted and represented, particularly perhaps most recently in the world of gaming, um, but also in the sort of world of... Uh, film and uh, so you you have these sort of two extremes of the uh, rather impressive 
television series Vikings, which I think does a reasonable job of trying to represent a genuine Viking world. And then sort of Thor and Loki, etc. in the Marvel comics where the Norse myths are really presented as a kind of Los Angeles costume party. Vikings is a much better, (laughs) the TV show is a much better way to try to get your head around uh, Norse myths and their complexity and their richness rather than the uh, Marvel movies. Uh, Certainly when I uh, started on this uh, episode, I knew a reasonable amount about Norse myths, but I am going to rely quite heavily on the work of a particular scholar, Neil Price, who has recently published a book, The Children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings, which builds on a lifetime of scholarship on uh, the Viking way and the Viking world and cultural atlas of the Viking world, etc., etc. So, and he, in fact, I think, uh, teaches at Uppsala University, which, so he is uh, a fellow, uh, you know, has has that connection with Isaac uh, Rich, who also studied at Uppsala University. So there you go, six degrees of separation. And I think the first thing to just comment on is where where did the Norse myths come from? How do we know anything at all about the Norse myths? Um, we we see all these things about how they appear in WoW and Marvel comics and even in operas like uh, Wagner's Ring Cycle. You know, we have Odin and uh, Brunhilde and the Ride of the Valkyries and all the rest of it. We see constant representations of them, more or less authentically, more or less cartoon images in uh, games. But where indeed do they come from? And the short answer to this is really two main sources. There's a bunch of texts, largely from like about the 8th to the 12th centuries, which present the thought world of the Norse peoples, or Norse mythology, and the thought world of uh, the Vikings, which are indeed mediated through uh, the people who were writing them down and receiving them and present, representing them. Largely, at that point, people who had converted to Christianity, but still with the basic stories there. And then the other main source is, I guess, archaeology and a range of scientific research that has been that's underway and you know all sorts of artifacts like dresses you know clothing and tools and ships and discovered villages and uh, huge coins huge range of uh, archaeology and then scientific research also on like the climate conditions and a whole range of things like that so that's sort of kind of broadly where we get our main sort of sense of things and the texts, uh, the I mean, one of the main one of the texts used for understanding the Norse world, the Norse world is Beowulf, which I discussed on a previous episode of the podcast. That was episode twenty six back in November twenty twenty one. So Beowulf, but then there are also a whole series of sagas, the Icelandic sagas, and indeed there's a saga of Ragnar Lothbrok that the television show Vikings is broadly based on. Uh, the sagas are 
the Icelandic sagas are kind of like novels, short stories of from that time, and that they they tell a lot about the life, the daily life of people in Iceland, and they also present all the sort of the background beliefs, and, uh, myths, etc., of the Norse world. There's a, a very you know popular guide into that written by Richard Feidler and Kari Gilslesen, Saga Land. The Island of Stories at the Edge of the World, which uh, gives you a bit of a feel for some of those those stories. And then there is also two two texts by Snorri Sturluson. I don't quite know how to put the uh, emphasis in Snorri's surname, Sturluson, Sturluson. Uh, but he wrote uh, two books, and Snorri, who I... Um, referred to back in episode 32 I got his surname wrong but uh, he was the chair of or the speaker of the Icelandic parliament or the thing uh, and was a scholar and a you know like a scold like he was a, a poet and he wrote two books one was called the prose edda and one was called the poetic edda he, the Poetic Edda was sort of collected by him. Uh, and the Poetic Edda has the various poems which are, tell the stories of uh, the Norse stories. The Prose Edda tells some of those stories in prose form, as well as having a whole lot of advice on the art of Norse poetry or kenning, which has its particular way of doing things. And uh, just so that the good listeners of the Burning Archive can get a bit of a feel for the original world of this, let me just read a little bit from from one of the poems there, Thrym's poem, which tells the story of Freya and Thor, Freya's indignant response when Loki and Thor suggest that they marry, suggest that she marry a giant. Furious was Thor when he awoke and missed his hammer. He shook his beard, he tossed his hair to and fro. Earth's son began to grope about. And these were the very first words he spoke. Listen, Loki, to what I'm saying. What no one knows... Nowhere on earth, nor in heaven, the god has been robbed of his hammer. They went to the beautiful courts of Freya, and there were the very first words he spoke. And these were the very first words he spoke. Will you lend me, Freya, your feather shirt to see if I can find my hammer? It's a magical kind of robe. Freya said, I'd give it you even if it were made of gold i'd lend it to you even if it were made of silver then loki flew off the feather shirt whistled until he came outside the courts of the Aesir, who are the sort of main uh, gods i guess of the the norse world and he came inside giant land Thrym sat on a grave mound, lord of the ogres, plaiting golden collars for his bitches. He was trimming his horse's manes. Thrym said, What's up with the Aesir? What's up with the elves? Why have you come alone into giant land? Bad news among the Aesir, bad news among the elves. 
Have you hidden Thor's hammer? So that was just to give you a bit of a feel for the original presentation of some of these myths. And uh, so yeah, we had Thor, we had Thor's hammer, we had Freya, we had Loki, we had elves, we had sort of magic special garments uh, and all sorts of things like that. We also had references to the pantheon of the gods, the family, so to speak, of the gods, the Aesir and the giants. So you kind of start to get a sense of just what, how much of our uh, language of fantasy is actually uh, taken from this, this uh, set of Norse myths. So Sturluson's texts and those poems are, I guess, I mean, they're the source material of all the familiar images we have of the Norse myths. Um, but as I said, I think one of the things about the Norse myths that uh, I guess this podcast is aiming to bring out is it's stranger than we think uh, or than perhaps we've become accustomed to think. And part of making the past dead, making it not even past, is re-establishing the strangeness of some of the things of the past. And fortunately, there is a, you know, historians and students of uh, Norse culture and Vikings and students of Russia, I must say, also, a quite famous text uh, which is an account of Scandinavian merchants or sort of magnates on the Volga River in 922. And this was actually first kind of presented in a in the 1200s, I think. Yeah, in the 1200s by an Arabic writer, Yakut ibn Abdallah. But he was actually representing a text written by a Muslim diplomat from Baghdad who was travelling to Bulgaria on a sort of diplomatic mission and kind of went over the Caspian and Aral Seas up towards the sort of Don and I guess what, you know, the Azov Sea, the sort of area where the, you know, Russian-Ukraine conflict is currently most intense at the moment uh, on his way to to Bulgaria. And they uh, recorded uh, his sort of cultural encounters with a group of people who Ahmed Ivan Fadlan, who was the diplomat, called Russians, but the Yakut Ibn Abdallah, the later later person described as Northmen, and has subsequently really been interpreted as a, a representation of the, I guess, the cultural transmission of the early Viking intrusions into Russia. Indeed, you know, Central Asia almost, really. And it's a remarkable text, and it conveys a real sense of the strangeness of it. And it, I guess, conveys a bit of a sense of the mist. Like, it's a bit like the story of Beowulf, this amazing text that has been saved somehow. Uh, this text itself has a rather fascinating story, you know, written by this diplomat who 
who had a fairly strong sneer of cultural superiority about every group that he encountered on his way from Baghdad to the redneck territory of Bulgaria and didn't particularly like the customs and styles of these peoples, but still seemed to have some level of uh, skill, I guess, in recording and making authentic his descriptions of things so that the vividness of the uh, the cultural encounter that he uh, recounted has lasted this day and become an incredible resource for trying to understand Norse mythology, Norse culture, but also Russian culture because, you know, This is a long way from Norway, isn't it? Um, The Volga River in southern southern Russia. And it may be that what is described here is, you know, the the core essence of pre-Christian Norse culture, or it could be some sort of amalgam of Norse culture and Slav culture, Slavic culture and and all sorts of other adaptations along the way, or local variations along the way. So it's a bit of a lesson in interpretation of history. And I, I do love in the little uh, description of the of the text, it describes the... Because this text really appears, gets get sort of translated into European languages, uh, including Russian, in, in the sort of early 19th century. And is fully fully translated actually properly translated by the St Petersburg Academy in 1823 but before then there had actually been a, an English translation and the scholars on this note that the English version is quite untrustworthy besides omitting certain passages some of the inaccuracies are due to uh, imperfections in the manuscript so there you go, misinformation about uh, Russia out of England has been occurring for a very, very long time. Um, anyhow, that's a bit of a diversion. Um, and what I'm going to do is just to convey a sense of the strangeness of some of the sort of Norse myths. Just read a little bit from this account, which talks about various customs and you know, how they kind of lived and the fact that they appear to wear, have something like tattoos and their dress and their weapons and all sorts of fascinating little details. But uh, at a certain point, he describes the funeral practices of the, both the ordinary people in this group of Norse-influenced Russians on the Volga River, but also a funeral of one of the chiefs of the magnates. And so he actually went and witnessed one of these uh, funerals. And he says, first they laid him in his grave, over which a roof was erected for the space of ten days until they had completed the cutting and sewing of his clothes. In the case of a poor man, however, they merely build him up build for him a boat in which they place him and consume it with fire. At the death of a rich man, they bring together his goods and divide them into three parts. The first of these is for his family, the second is expended for the garments they make, 
and with the third they purchase strong drink against the day when the girl resigns herself to death and is burned with her master. So when one of their chief dies, his family asks his girls and pages which one of you will die with him. And when they say girls and pages, they kind of mean sort of slave girls. Uh, Which one of you will die with him? Then one of them answers, I. From the time that he utters this word, he is no longer free. Should he wish to draw back, he is not permitted. For the most part, however, it is the girls that offer themselves. So when the man of whom I spoke died, they asked his girls, who will die with him? One of them answered, I. She was then committed to two girls who were to keep watch over her, accompany her whenever she went, and even on occasion wash her feet. And it goes on to describe the various practices prior to that. And then they come to a sort of laying up the ship with, uh, you know, various precious items. Uh, and the dead man is placed uh, on the boat, uh, on a sort of a couch uh, in the ship, covered with a cloth of gold. And there came... And then I start reading again. There came an old crone whom they call the angel of death and spread the articles mentioned on the couch. It was she who attended to the sewing of the garments and to all the equipment. It was she also who was to slay the girl. That's right. We're talking human sacrifice here. I saw her. She was dark, thick set with a lowering, lowering countenance. And then they, they fill people with drink, uh, sort of ceremonial clothes. They sort of uh, dispose of the pets and sacrifice animals. And then he says, The girl who had devoted herself to death, meanwhile, walked to and fro, entering one after another of the tents which they had there. The occupant of each tent lay with her, saying, Tell your master, I, the man who died, did this only, oh, the man who was doing this, did this only for love of you. So ultimately then the sacrificial victim is plied with drink and given uh, very ceremonial clothes and then lifted into the ship. Uh, but not yet admitted to the tent. Now men came up with shields and staves and handed her a cup of strong drink. This she took, sang over it, and emptied it. With this, so the interpreter told me, she is taking leave of those who are dear to her. Then another cup was handed her, which she also took, and began a lengthy song. The crone admonished her to drain the cup without lingering and to enter the tent where her master lay. By this time, as it seemed to me, the girl had become dazed, or possibly crazed, the uh, translator says. She made as though she would enter the tent and had brought her head forward between the tent and the ship when the hag seized her by the head and dragged her in. And so it goes on and on, quite, quite remarkable uh, text, really about human sacrifice. So, and I think in the TV show Vikings, this there are uh, quite a few scenes that represent this kind of 
pre-Christian culture um, and uh, some of its strangeness and some of its different kind of mental world. Um, very, very, very different uh, from our own or even, I guess, from the mental world of Ibn Fadun, who recorded that uh, event in the 900s uh, somewhere on the Volga River. And whether it is typical of all Norse cultures, we never, we can never really know. But I guess that gives a little bit of a sense of both the strangeness, but also a sense of where some of uh, our own knowledge of these uh, texts come from and how history is made from these kind of imperfect materials that have survived and that we, with, you know, changing, growing understanding, try to make sense of over time. Now, what I'm going to do is give a little bit of an overview of some of the key gods, the key features of Norse myths, of the Norse, of Norse mythology. And what I want to do is, a lot of this will be well known to listeners, but also what I want to do is give a little bit of a sense of a twist, of the twist that the latest scholarship from Neil Price in Children of Ash and Elm, based on you know, decades of study gives to what the original thinking around some of these gods and uh, themes of Norse mythology actually was. So I'm going to go through 10 elements. Midgard, which Yggdrasil, Thor, Odin, Frigg, Freya, Loki, the Valkyrie, Hel, and Ragnarok. And uh, so first of all, we're going to talk about Midgard. Uh, and Midgard is the name for the realm or the world of the humans in Norse mythology. And traditionally it's understood there are nine worlds or realms in Norse mythology. And they are, if I just quickly read this list, although there's sort of differences between different sources about what they are. But there's Asgard, which is the realm of the Aesir or the main gods. Alfheim, which is the realm of the bright elves. Jotunheim, realm of the giants. Midgard, realm of the humans. Muspelheim, uh, which is a realm for a fire, fire giants and the forces of chaos. A bit like Ragnaros in World of Warcraft. And Nidavellir, the realm of the dwarves. Niflheim, or Niflheim the realm of ice and mist uh, with a kind of a sort of like a underwater realm of the dead. Svartalheim, the realm of the black elves and Vanaheim, realm of the veneer. But what Price sort of brings out, I guess, is two things. One is that there's really no totally coherent and consistent cosmology, like a total coherent account of the law, so to speak, of the Norse mythology. Um, there's conflicts between the different sources. There are, you know, one place is, you know, located to the north in one, for example, to the north in one account and one place is to the south in another, all that sort of thing. And even the, the actual names and characteristics of the different realms differ in different accounts. So to some degree, the codification of Norse mythology into a set set of realms is a little bit, mm, you know, not quite 
uh, consistent with the more vital, creative, yeah, ever-evolving, living stories of Norse myths uh, back when they were living stories rather than, I guess, fossilised accounts written down in the 1200s and later. And the other thing that Neil Price uh, brings out is that uh, Midgard is a kind of a bounded place and reflects the sense of the Viking mind, the Norse mind, being conducted inside a wall of order and settlement. Not raids and all that sort of stuff, but inside a bounded world of order and settlement. And indeed, Midgard is actually also the scene of the kind of creation story of humans, uh, which Neil Price's book, The Children of Ash and Elm, comes from. And it's really this core story, if you like, that is the sort of origin myth that Price really says that would have been clear in the minds of the Vikings. They were not confused about where they came from. They, they saw themselves very much as children of Ash and Elm. And Midgard itself is like a, there's a big wall or a big ocean all around it. So it's like a big circle, uh, which is like a huge walled garden. And uh, the story goes that uh, this is where human beings were first populated. Ask and Embla, or Ash and Elm, in uh, Richard Price's sort of translation, um, Odin, who we'll come to, and a couple of other people kill Ymir and create the world. And as they're walking along the sea, they find two sort of broken down tree trunks, an ash and an elm tree. And what they do is they sort of manipulate and shape these, sculpt these ashes and elms. And ultimately from the ash tree they sort of liberate a man and from an elm tree they liberate a woman so that's the kind of story and for those people who are coming to this podcast from a gaming perspective there's there's that sort of resonance there with the sort of shapers and the sort of various stories about the uh, creation of different human beings from stone and other sorts of objects so again uh, one of many many creation myths uh, and one that has fed into our culture so that's Midgard Midgard um, and I guess Midgard is probably also there's an echo of Midgard in in Tolkien's Middle-earth as well. Second kind of theme is Yggdrasil, and Yggdrasil is the world tree. Yggdrasil is there as this giant, I think it's an ash tree, that is um, kind of there at the start of the world and slowly emerges. And, and um, around the mist and uh, whatnot what of the tree, other beings start to emerge. And Price says that, though that and, and traditionally you'll see in guides to Norse mythology that the tree uh, sort of binds together or is represented in a circle or something like that, that sort of binds 
together and connects all these different realms that we talked about before, including Midgard. And whether that was really the case or not, it's hard to say. But certainly that um, incredible story of like a, a tree in which the world nestles and is sort of the source and origin of all life is is um, a potent myth, a beautiful image, uh, very much adopted these days, I guess, in various kind of new age, new pagan kind of uh, even environmental sort of iconography. What Price says, it's, it, there's no really consistent explanation of the world tree. It's such a fundamental core symbol. It's the, it's the start of life. And like many uh, the images and elements of Norse mythology, it's grounded in everyday perception. Indeed, what he says about the tree is that it may well be a sort of representation of the night sky. So he says relatively little is known of how the Vikings understood the night sky, the stars and the constellations beyond a few ambiguous references in a snotty, which some dismiss while others take seriously. However, one Icelandic scholar is convinced that Yggdrasil can be read as an interpretation of the Milky Way. Uh, and he says, especially when one escapes the nocturnal light pollution of our cities and sees its majesty rearing overhead, impossibly vast, with its cloudy arms spanning the skies like branches. So again, another little twist on the image of the world tree and those of you who've played uh, World of Warcraft would know there's quite a few world trees uh, Teldrassil, Nordrassil, all that sort of thing in in uh, World of Warcraft and uh, clearly they're all quite direct references to uh, the original and the best Yggdrasil there I guess features the world uh, there are also gods in world of war in not in world of warcraft there are also gods in norse mythology and the first one to talk about is odin odin who i think uh it can also be known as votan or woden and uh in more sort of germanic versions of the norse myths and uh, so appears, for example, in Wagner's Ring Cycle opera uh, under that name, and was one of the people who shaped humans into being. And what can we say about Odin? Odin uh, was known as the father of men, or all-father, and was a god of poetry, secret wisdom, and magic. Uh, he, he gained his wisdom by drinking from one cup from the well of Mimir, another reference there to World of Warcraft fans, in which all wisdom was stored, and in exchanging for having this drink, he had to give up one of his eyes. He was also a god of war, and would join battle, wielding a spear named uh, Gungnur, and riding an eight-legged horse named Sleepnir. Price, and so that's the sort of traditional sort of quick guide to uh, Norse gods uh, from a, a traditional source. Uh, and Price says that, in fact, Odin has over 
hundred names. Like many gods, I guess, he's described in different ways. You think about how uh, Shiva, like many of the Hindu gods, uh, have different sort of names. Some of his names were Mask or Third, the Hawk, Victory Tree, Ghost Lord, Ripper, Battle Screamer. And he was also very much associated with this sort of sense of uh, giving up his eyes for wisdom. And I think there's also a story where he he sort of hung upside down from a tree for nine days to discover the secret of runes. That's part of his wisdom. Again, he is in a way when Price describes him also uh, this like he he emphasizes that the Norse gods are not they're not just the god of war or the god of wisdom. They participate in those things, but they also bring their own personality to it and they are sort of a more flexible, flexible sort of uh, figures. Consistent also with the fact that we don't really know whether one set of stories about Odin is the only set of stories there ever was or or there are not sort of like, you know, many, many, many different uh, Counts that we have lost of this uh, this uh, this set of myths, but o- Odin is also particularly known for kind of moving between different worlds, uh, slipping through different worlds. In fact, the eight-legged stallion he rides, Sleipnir, uh, the name literally means sliding one. Its teeth were etched with runes. Uh, so Odin is really very much also a figure of sorcery, uh, memory, using ravens to scour the world for news. And uh, Odin has many residences, one of which is Valhall, which is the Hall of the Slain, commonly changed into Valhalla, uh, but it was by no means his only residence, nor the only hall in which the dead or other gods went. So, big figure Odin. Then we have Thor. Thor is Odin's son, uh, conceived by Odin sleeping with a giantess outside of his marriage with another figure we'll get to, Frigg. Frigg was Odin's wife. Uh, And... Thor was the god of thunder, I guess, that that you get that from the sort of Marvel representations of him. He is also a figure of combat, the strongest god, a lord of wind and weather, a caller of storms and thunder, a scourge of the giants. Many poems have long, long, long lists of all his victims, and he's often one of the main focuses or the, the, the central character in many of the, the handed down stories, uh, perhaps representing a fascination with uh, military combat, I guess. His hammer, which I am wearing around my neck, uh, was known, as, had a name itself, Milonia, Milonia. M-J-O with the umlets, uh, L-N-I-R, 
umlets, I think, the little double dots over the O, Mjolnir. Uh, and Thor's wife was Sif, who had golden hair that was celebrated by poets. And Thor and Sif uh, and Thor appear uh, in some kind of marriage in in uh, World of Warcraft uh, quite a bit as well. So that's Thor, God of Thunder, referred to even by a chronicler, uh, Adam of Bremen, who was like a monk or something in the 11th century, so the 1000s. As Thor, they reckon, rules the sky, he governs thunder and lightning, winds and storms, fine weather and fertility. And perhaps the Christians um, maybe turned him almost into some kind of primary god, uh, perhaps ruling the sky up there in heaven. Okay, uh, that's two blokes. Let's talk about two women now. So Frigg was Odin's wife. So Frigg was Frigg was Odin's wife uh, and considered the premiere of the goddesses in the Norse pantheon with the ability to predict the future. Her son, by the way, was Baldr, B-A-L-D-R, for anyone who's ever played the famous uh, computer roleplay game Baldur's Gate, um, they might recognise that name. And the, I guess the traditional image of uh, the Norse goddesses, uh, goddesses of uh, fecundity and uh, fertility, guardians of fruitfulness. But Price uh, makes clear that this is a bit of a reflexive trope. That's the word he uses. That uses and in any. that doesn't really recognise the power and agency exercised by the female uh, goddesses in the Norse mythological world. So Frigg, he says, was whose husband was Odin, acted as manager of Asgard, or or the sort of home of all the gods, and held sway over its disposition. Others bowed to her authority, which was her own rather than an allowance bestowed by a male god. Yes, the goddesses were beautiful, just as stereotype would have it, but in a way that inspired terror as well as desire. Frigg was Odin's wife, but uh, she also, in various accounts of the stories, slept with all of Odin's brothers and even with a slave in an act of revenge and spite on on uh, Odin for slighting her in some way. Then we have uh, Freya, uh, the goddess, uh, after which my daughter, Freya Rich, who appeared on the show back in, oh, let me see, when was it? Back in episode 22 in October 2021, A Canon of One's Own, which is a wonderful episode. Do check it out. That's where um, this whole pattern of being asked questions that I then prepare episodes on uh, began. The traditional account of Freya is that she's the goddess of love and fertility. As Price says, a kind of Viking 
Venus. But this is one of the most cliched representations of Freya. He says that Freya is primarily an embodiment of women and every aspect of their lives, agency and potential, including childbirth. Above all, she is a being of power, one of the greatest of the deities. Always in control, she defies the attempts of gods, dwarves, giants and others to objectify and coerce her. Uh, She drives a wagon pulled by cats, which sounds like uh, a hard thing to organise, and takes many lovers. Her husband is virtually invisible in the mythology. She has a fabulous necklace called Brisingamen, which uh, she acquired by betting for dwarf smiths in turn. And she regularly uh, ignores what Price says are various attempts by the other gods to slut-shame her. She is also, and this is an interesting twist, a deity of the battlefield and its aftermath. In fact, she has her very own version of Valhalla called Sethrumnir, or the Seat Room, where uh, she would take half of the dead soldiers on the battlefield. Very much a deity of war and not just love. And in a way, a, a representation of a particular kind of war and conflict and combat. A particular kind of combat, of malice or what... what um, Price described as calculated viciousness. Okay, then we have the uh, the archetypal figure of the trickster Loki, also known as a fire god, uh, and also one of the characters in Wagner's Ringside. Loki again is a very complicated figure. His traditional representation is as the offspring of a giant and a goddess a kind of trickster. Uh, He helps other gods, but other times causes trouble, and he can shapeshift into all sorts of different uh, shapes. And uh, there are many, many events where he causes havoc and difficulty for for the other gods, including, I think, using mistletoe to somehow kill Freak's son, Balder. On Loki, this is what Price has to say, that he's something of a mystery. So he says, in the many, many tales about him, he causes unending mischief for the gods and stirs up trouble uh, with the giants, only to almost always solve the resulting mess himself. He is handsome and humorous, sly and malicious all at once. It was Loki he cut off Sif's original hair and then made a deal with the dwarves to make her new locks that shone like gold but grew from her head. He also had an affair with her to Thor's fury. Having caused Baldur's murder, Loki will at last be bound in the entrails of his own son, poison dripping on his face forever until the Ragnarok, when all chains are broken. At the end, he will steer the ship of the dead against the gods. Intriguing figure is Loki. 
And then also from Wagner's Ring Cycle, we had the Valkyrie and the Valkyrie people bringing the, the slain soldiers to Valhalla on behalf of Odin, but also maybe also on behalf of Freya, it would seem. And the, this perhaps just the, the nature of that image is such that it has been adopted and transformed so many times. And the image that one has in Wagner or in, I guess, like, uh, like computer games like World of Warcraft, I mean, in, in many ways, uh, Sylvanas is a, a kind of a, a Valkyrie figure. They are far from the truth in Price's view. So again... Just that twist on the thing. What he says is, in the literature, the Valkyries are servants of Odin and select the bravest warriors to die in battle. As the slain prepare for Ragnarok, they serve mead by the Valkyries as hostesses of the hall and perhaps offered more personal comfort. The Valkyries are described as armed with spear, sword and shield, armoured in mail and sometimes helmeted. They ride horses through the sky. When you see dew on the grass, it is sweat fallen from the flanks of the Valkyrie's steeds. The battle women occasionally don the skins and wings of swans, permitting them flight in the Eddic poems. Uh, Valkyries at times adopt an individual human hero, protecting him in combat and often falling in love. But it is at this point, if not earlier, that they begin to merge with what would become their legend. And he in fact shows a in, in the book there's a little sort of image of Woman of War, which again shows the not at all like, I guess, the image of a Valkyrie from a computer game or uh, or from, you know, Wagner opera is a much more sort of mundane, if you like, woman of war. Then we have two last, perhaps well-known, elements of Norse mythology to finish off with, and they are H-E-L, which I would have pronounced hell until I read Price's book, and so I know is actually pronounced heel, but... Uh, sounds uh, th- there is a long, long argument about its relationship to the Christian concept of hell or the underworld, and whether it was adapted or planted or modified by the Christian writers who were transcribing the the Norse myths in in the later converted uh, time. But hell, or heel, was the main realm of the dead. It was located in the north and ruled by a being, a woman whose body is half that of a beautiful goddess and half blue and dark, the colour of a corpse. She is Loki's daughter by one of his complicated liaisons and is said to be gloomy and downcast. One of the things... Uh, Price brings out is whether Heel was really a bad place and this is central to the question of untangling the Norse afterlife. What he sort of brings out there is in fact Heel is not the only place that the dead go after their death. There are other, other realms for the dead as well. And if you like, it is not uh, like a day of judgment kind of thing. Some people go to heaven and some people go to the bad place, heal. Rather, there seems to be more uh, 
an uncontrolled you know uh, an uncontrolled fate that leads to whether or not you go to heal or in, under the sort of the nipplime sort of under the water kind of uh, place of the dead it's unclear whether there is uh, where women go when they die and, and there's also said to be one realm or one sort of place where slaves go after after their death so again the word can sound the same and the concept might look the same uh the fiery you know chambers of hell but um the concepts around the afterlife and what death means and what that means for how one should live one life live one's life are very very different different ways of conceiving and informing uh, life and practice and then finally the final element i want to talk about is ragnarok and ragnarok is kind of like the battle uh, at the end of the world a kind of a vision of uh, apocalypse brought on by the sun sort of disappearing the emergence of a long long winter trees shaking loose cold coming down roosters calling warning horns um, being blown by the gods across the worlds and then some vast vast destructive battle in which the gods participate and the world sort of comes to a kind of end or an end and a rebirth perhaps and it said if i just read from the excerpt from the story from that price includes the ocean boils and churns as the midgard serpent twists itself onto the land its venom sprays over Thor even as he kills it, his hammer falling as he takes nine great paces into heel. Loki and Heimdall, the trickster and the guardian of the bridge, each slay the other. Tyr fights the hellhound Garm, and they are both torn to pieces. Freyr is forced to battle without his sword and is killed by Surt, whose own blade shines brighter than the sun. The jaws of the great wolf Fenrir open wide to scrape the earth and sky, and Odin is eaten alive, but the beast does not live long. Its head ripped apart by all father's son. The worlds are awash with blood, but all has happened as it should, as it was foretold. When the Ragnarok is done, everything is dead. The gods and their foes lie paired, slain together in mutual fury. Around the plains of Vigrifa, the field is strewn to the horizon with all the bodies of the human race and the invisible population with whom they shared their world. There is no light because the sky is black and empty, the celestial bodies dissolved. A cold, dark fog covers the worlds and the very fabric of creation is streaming away into the void. The end of all things, death after the afterlife and eternal absence. Extraordinary image, uh, Ragnarok. And the big twist about Ragnarok, I guess, is really where I started the show, which was what on 
earth does the tropical place of El Salvador have to do with Norse mythology? So there's a place called Lake Ilopango in uh, El Salvador, near San Salvador. Now a uh, quite a large lake that is actually within a volcanic caldera uh, or an old centre of a exploded volcano. And it is believed or understood or it has been determined rather that this volcano erupted in an enormous eruption in approximately 536 AD. And there seems to be some different estimations of when exactly it erupted, but certainly in Price's account of the uh, history of the Vikings, this is the version that he presents. That Lake Ilopango erupted in uh, 536 and not only that, but there was uh, two other very large eruptions uh, a couple of years, within 10 years of that big event. The uh, explosion at Lake Ilopango was so, so big, uh, I think it's seen as like one of the top 10 uh, volcanoes in the last five or 7,000 years. So it was an enormous explosion. And then combined with those other large explosions effectively created a kind of a dust veil, a nuclear winter, a, a, a catastrophic climatic climactic event uh, across the world. And it had a particularly devastating impact on Scandinavia and the northern world uh, because this part of the world uh, is pretty cold. <laughs> And it doesn't have a lot of arable land. And it's been you know, assessed in uh, the scholarship that uh, Price refers to that the temperature uh, dropped uh, three degrees on average, that large parts of the fairly marginal amount of arable land in Scandinavia became no longer arable. Potentially there was even acid rain that affected the fisheries of the area. It had a devastating impact on population. In fact, it was, it's been estimated that the sort of Scandinavian population fell by 50% in this time. So it's effectively a kind of climate catastrophe induced 6th century collapse. And the, the sort of, if you like, what Price argues is the kind of folk memory, so to speak, of this climate change catastrophe was echoed or, or continued to be expressed in the Norse myths. In fact, the Norse myths almost were a kind of retelling of a, a recreation of a culture that had been destroyed and ruined in response to that event. So he quotes, for example, uh, from the Poetic Edda, I guess, there are references that sort of create this sort of sense of a darkened skies and a, a kind of a nuclear winter kind of event. In the Edda it said, first of all, that a winter will come called Fimble Winter, 
or the great winter. Then snow will drift from all directions. There will then be great frosts and keen winds. The sun will do no good. There will be three of these winters together and no summer between. And in one of the poems in the Poetic Edda, one of the most important ones called the Seeresses, Seeresses, prophecy, as in the seer, as in visionary, Seeresses, prophecy, it says, black becomes the sun's beams in the summers that follow, weathers or treacherous. And he also points to similar references in the Kalevala, uh, the sort of old mythology of the Finns, uh, where it says, what wonder blocks out the moon, what fog is in the sun's way, that the moon gleams not at all and the sun shines not at all. And, and so there's this devastating loss. There's archaeological evidence that suggests there's sort of change in cultural practices afterwards uh, and that a lot of the, the myths and stories that we know are sort of generated after this time. And also there's a sort of a migration of the peoples of Scandinavia who, I mean, can you imagine like a 50% population loss, which would have been randomly distributed, like entire villages would have been wiped out, entire communities would have been wiped out in many cases. But yes, so there's, there's, um, there's this sort of migration that occurs and there's this sort of rebuilding of a society and a new ethos and a new culture, which becomes the world and the culture of the Vikings. And it becomes the mental and social world. Indeed, what Price says is that parts of the Viking Age may have originated precisely with the imagining of its end. And it's the Fimble Winter, which is the uh, start of Ragnarok. And so Ragnarok is like the imagined apocalypse, but in a way it's almost like the creation story of the Viking. Climate change and Norse mythology, well, it's maybe not climate change, but responses of humans to climactic events and Norse mythology tied together in the one, one podcast. There's so much more uh, that can be said about Norse mythology. I mean, uh, Price's book is fascinating in the way in which it describes the development of kind of uh, a military ethos, the importance of farms and family to Norse Viking life, the unexpected nature of many of the concepts around gender, very much a patriarchal society, but with some very unusual things. The role of ships and raiding. I mean, traditionally it's understood that the Vikings first raided Lindisfarne, but just in the last 10 years or so, Lindisfarne, like on the like north part of Scotland in a 780 or something like that, in the last uh, 10 years or so, there's been a large Viking ship discovered in Estonia, which suggests that there was a raid in that area approximately 50 years before Lindisfarne. So the first playground for the Viking raids was really the Baltic Sea rather than the North Sea. 
There was also a huge role for slaves in the Viking economy and the mental world of the of the Norse um, the Norse peoples. Uh, we heard about slaves really in that um, description of the the funeral in the Volga. There was a very complicated sense of self, of, of, and a, a completely different sense of self to what we have. Uh, today, not a sense of like uh, body and soul, but a quite different sense of self, of slipping between different ways of being. And much more so than gods, there was a very strong sense of the presence of what Price calls the hidden people, elves, dwarves, mysterious beings, who, who, whose presence people felt. So this was a different, a different uh, thought world, and it's perhaps not surprising that things like sorcery and sacrifice, and poets and ruins and mead halls, um, which were very much part of this world, would and and were tied together in in their own sort of way uh, within that culture. But still, they 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 kind of live on in a funny sort of way in in, in computer games and the importance of elves and uh, all of that. Uh, the importance of sorcery, sword and sword and magic kind of concept. So the remarkable story of how uh, these Norse myths have. I guess been miraculously saved by both literature and science, by Snorri Sturluson, and also by the archaeologists and the scientists who've uncovered the reality of things. These myths are incredibly fertile. They've laid down these major strands of the culture that we now know as the West. And they are now as much a part of the thought world of many of our contemporary cultures as Christianity or Roman civilization or, or whatever other antecedent culture you might want to think about. So it is worth being curious, I guess, about the Norse myth, looking into them in greater depth than you might find in a Marvel film, finding the ways in which shows like the viking like vikings presents uh, the strangeness uh, of uh, the viking world looking into some of these original texts and uh, responding to both what's familiar with them but also what's really 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 strange and by all means do check out the wonderful book by neil price the children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings, just published, let me see, when was it published? It was published in 2020, and I do thank Neil Price for uh, opening my eyes to uh, some remarkable, remarkable things about the, Vi uh, the Vikings, but also the mythology of the Norse. You can also find uh, Neil Price talking on a couple of other history podcasts about about the Norse myths and the mental world of the Norse myths, um, and so do check those out. And 
I also would ask all my dear listeners to leave to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you're using leave us a review on apple drop us a line if you like on at the burning archive at gmail.com and tell your friends about the show i will be back next week i think with one more little episode about ukraine because I've received a fabulous question from a listener about the whole Ukraine situation. And I think I might make a whole episode based around that question. And But then, after that, I'm going on to the next of the uh, questions raised by Isaac Rich of the Burning Archive, which was about handicrafts, professions and guilds as they're represented in games and how does that relate to the real history of i guess both uh, work and industry and uh, i guess unions and craft guilds that sort of thing thank you for listening to the burning archive podcast it's the podcast which is about all things history and culture where the past is never dead the past is not even past And we make that so by making sure that what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Bye now.